So it was Eugene Peterson who introduced me to a little curious um, uh, 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 idea of modern existence by asking the question, how do you define a day? Most of us think of a day of when we start, when we wake up, we kind of do our thing, we get our life accomplished, and then we collapse into our beds at night, and therefore that was the day. Well, it might surprise you that the Bible has a very different view of that, and you see it uh, from Genesis chapter 1. It begins in verse 5. You get this continual refrain that God created all things. There was evening and there was morning the first day and the second day and the third day. In other words, the Jewish idea of a day actually started the moment you went to bed at night. And it ended the next, and day, at the end of daylight the very next day. Peterson says this. He says, our day begins with an alarm clock ripping the pre-dawn darkness and closes not with evening, but several hours past that when we finally turn off our electric lights. In our conventional references today, we don't include the night except for the two or three hours we steal from either end to give us more time for work. More than idiomatic speech is involved here, there is a sense of rhythm. Look, we've said this whole time that when God created the world, he created it in, in the midst of darkness and void. And then he speaks light and stars and vegetation and finally man and woman into being. And so there's a sense in which when we go to sleep at night, we kind of enter into our own darkness and void, don't we? We, we go into this sort of state of semi-consciousness that doctors are still kind of puzzled by exactly, whatever sleep really is. But the point is, is that when we sleep, we kind of become completely unproductive humans, don't we? <laughs> There's not a lot of cash value that we have when we're actually sleeping. We even come up with phrases to tell each other, you know, you snooze, you lose. But according to Peterson, this is actually when God goes to work. He pulls out a great quote from George MacDonald, who says that sleep is God's creation for getting into us what he can't get into us when we're awake. <laughs> in other words, God is trying to get something into us. But what is it? Here's what Peterson says. He says, when I quit my day's work, nothing essential stops. I prepare for sleep, not with a feeling of exhausted frustration, but because there's much yet undone and unfinished. But with a sense of expectancy, the day is about to begin. God's Genesis words are about to be spoken again. So that in during the hours of my sleep, I wonder how he's going to prepare me for my obedience and my service and my speech when the morning finally breaks. I go to sleep to get out of the way for a while. I get into the rhythm of salvation. Because while we sleep, these great and marvelous things far beyond our capacities to invent or engineer, they're all in process. Human effort is honored and respected not as a thing in itself, but as an integration into the rhythms of grace and blessing. Hey, did you notice how many times he used the word rhythms in that? We've been going through this uh, study in the Ten Commandments, and we said that these are not just a bunch of sort of abstract mental ethics that Moses is giving to us, but rather he's giving us this blueprint for humanity, the manufacturer's design for human thriving. So in, in, in the fourth commandment, he says, remember the Sabbath day by setting it apart or making it holy. And so what I want to try to convince you of this morning is simply this, is that life itself in God's economy comes with its own rhythm. 
When God created the universe, he created a biblically defined tempo for life, defined by seasons and by months and by weeks and, yes, by days. And the clearest punctuation of that rhythm is what the Bible calls the Sabbath day. One poet called it the percussion of creation, that when we honor it, we experience blessing and joy. But when we ignore it, it actually brings dysfunction into our life and disintegration. And so I want us to consider that this commandment that really is on the quick, it's the commandment that's on the list that we are the quickest to say, uh, uh, who needs that? We're the most dismissive about this one. We think to ourselves, oh, great. Now we're going to start talking about the Sabbath. Oh, we're all getting legalistic here, I guess. But here's the deal. The Ten Commandments, this is in the list of the other ones that include like stealing and murder. It's in the same list. And I think one of the reasons why we're so repelled at the idea is because how culturally ingrained it is in us what it's trying to work against. We are a profoundly overworked society. It's been 20 years since Julia Shore wrote the book, The Overworked American, The Unexpected Decline of Leisure. And she chronicled there that among in the world nations, no one beats America when it comes to being overstressed, anxious, and destructive of families and marriages and children through not being able not to work. We can't do it. Now, I can tell you that in my time here in Oxford, this seems to be the number one personal ailment. It's almost trendy to be worn out all the time. But look, don't lose the big picture because in the book of Exodus, God is telling a story of recreation to his people. These brand new freed Jews who've just left Egypt are being called to image their father by these 10 commandments. In other words, there's his attributes that we are getting from him and they lead us into human flourishing. And so the Sabbath command means that God's people get in touch with these rhythms of life that he created we too start to participate in a recreation of all things. We can be a part of that. And so as we look at this commandment, remember, there's always a negative and a positive thrust to each command. And so, in other words, the fourth commandment isn't just a commandment for us to rest. It's also a commandment for us to work, which is a nice little outline for what we're going to do this morning. The nature of work and then the need for rest. Just two points this morning. Let's dive into it. First of all, the nature of work. Well, here's the biblical rhythm of life, if you're wanting to know. Six days of work, one day of rest. There it is. And so if you're really going to understand God's command to rest, you've got to get your idea around what the Bible says about our work. And I think there's a few things the Bible says that are helpful for us to unpack. The first is this. Work, we believe, is a fundamental human need. Yeah, you heard me. People oftentimes miss this when they look at the story of creation in Genesis 1 through 3. Because when you get to chapter 2, verse 15, you get this command that people are supposed to work uh, uh, and tend all the things that God has given us to do. But it's not until chapter 3 afterwards, chapter 3, verse 6 actually, where sin enters in and corrupts our work. This is really important because I do think that because work is hard, human beings can oftentimes think of it as if it's an inherent evil. Work was part of human sin. But that's not the case in the Bible's understanding. Work becomes cursed only after it's created as part of the good creation that God makes. It's sin that's corrupted work, not work itself. 
But how many of us long for heaven as being this eventual place where finally I won't have to work anymore? The Bible doesn't say that at all. We can, expect, we can expect, as I've said before, to look at the cosmos as this infinite treasure chest that God has implanted untold potentiality into that I expect we'll be working through straight on through eternity. Heaven is not a cessation of work. But in the West, we've kind of adopted sort of a Greek version of this, especially through Greek mythology and Pandora, who when Pandora opens up this container and releases all the evils into the world, you know what one of them is? Work. Of course we look at this as being a negative thing. I mean, seriously, go and ask someone, why is it that you're working? What's the reason why you chose your vocation? My guess is at some point you're going to get someone say, well, because make some money doing it. And in and of itself, I don't think that's necessarily a terrible reason, but it's really inadequate as a biblical reason because for a Christian, we work because it's in our humanity. We need to work. And when we don't, when we're withdrawn from it, we experience a spiritual, emotional, and even a physical uh, constitution break for us. We deteriorate when we're not working. I mean, I grant, granted, I love the couple months off that we kind of got at the beginning of the pandemic. Some of us had more than others. How did you do during that time? It's not always a time of flourish, flourishing when I'm that idle. But of course, the opposite's true. It's not just when we underwork. It's also when we overwork. You know, the command is right up there with murder and stealing in the same list, right? And so you've got to realize whether you're a society that celebrates and rewards overwork, like we do in the West, or maybe you live in a community that's sort of, you know, living for the weekend. Regardless, the pathology that our misunderstanding of work creates is just as awful as a society that encourages raping and pillaging. It's in the same list. So the first thing that we've got to realize is work is essential to our humanity in the biblical worldview. Second point, though, under this idea of the nature of work is that all legitimate human tasks are equally God-given and equally spiritual. It's a great time to drag out that great quote by Protestant reformer Martin Luther, who said, the humblest serving maid sweeping up for the glory of God is just as honoring to God, just as infused with dignity as the greatest preacher in the world. That little notion revolutionized Europe during the Reformation. This idea that all human vocations are equally spiritual. But here, we grew up in the South, or what Flannery Flannery O'Connor called the Christ-haunted South, which means that I'm guessing you, like I, growing up in a religious context, were taught that there were two kinds of, of work in the world. There was secular work that was kind of the worldly stuff that we did, but then there was sacred spiritual work, which was things like church and prayer meetings and the like, or better yet, ministry. In other words, you might want to be a doctor or you know, an architect, which is all fine, but the truly spiritual became ministers. Why are you laughing? Who laughed at that? That's not fair. I'm kidding. <laughs> but see, in the Bible, though, it's hilarious because we look and say that can't be right, right? But in the Bible, it calls that heresy Gnosticism. In other words, it's a Gnostic who divides life into the sacred and spiritual world. But all vocations under the lordship of Christ are pleasing to him so that the accountant has just as much rights to the favor of God as a missionary does. I realize this notion can be, can be, there's two things that come from that simple idea. The first is it's really encouraging, isn't it? 
for whatever reason, my wife and I, as we've gotten older, have begun to talk to our friends who really seem to have this, this latent sense of guilt about the fact that they're not involved in the active ministry. All they're doing is raising their kids and trying to build a career. They try to volunteer at church, but they certainly can't volunteer for the many thousands of programs that are offered. Well, this notion kind of frees that up that, hey, guess what? Changing that dirty diaper is what God has got for you now. And that may be all that you can do. And he smiles upon that activity. So it's very encouraging. But I think the opposite is also true, that like, since all vocations are done to God's glory, we always have to remind ourselves that my vocation is for God's glory. And I do think that a lot of times in, in, in circles like ourselves that are Presbyterian and Reformed, who try to push the, the spirituality of all vocation on ourselves, sometimes we'll use that as an excuse really ever to sort of ask what God's kingdom might bring upon my way of thinking about my job. We just avoid the, avoid the question altogether. <laughs> but I think it needs to be stressed we are a Christian lawyer, doctor, parent, which means that there ought to be something about the way I approach my work which is distinctive. I mean, think about this. I mean, how is your business different because of your involvement in it? When was the last time you and other Christians in your own workplace got together and had a retreat where you asked yourself, what honestly are we doing for the world? How are we making this better? How is God glorified in our business? So we believe in the spirituality of all work. And thirdly and finally, we believe that Christians' unique contribution of work is that we work out of a sense of freedom and not of slavery. Gives me a chance to pull out the obligatory uh, Presbyterian and Reformed illustration from Chariots of Fire. You're like ordered on your ordination that you have to use this at least one sermon once a year. That also is a joke. Pete thought that was funny. That's okay. Eric Little is the great sort of a Chinese missionary and, and world-class sprinter who looks at his sister at one point in the movie and says, Jenny, God made me for China. I know that. But he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. What we don't always get in that illustration is the contrast that the movie makes with, with Little's alter ego, Harold Abraham's, who inside the movie later on actually confesses why it is that he's running. Listen to this. He says, all my life, I've never known contentment. I'm forever in pursuit, and I don't even know what it is that I'm chasing. In other words, both of these men are striving for excellence, yet one of them is filled with joy as, the other, as he does, and the other one's filled with discontent. Same job, same training, same career, and yet one is satisfied and one is discontent. What's the difference? The answer is what's in their heart. Eric Little is working out of an overflow that comes from knowing that I am his and he is mine. I am loved by Christ. Abraham's on the other side is trying to quench an unquenchable longing inside of his heart. Which means, among other things, this. You cannot work well without a base note of peace inside your heart. In other words, in this really kind of ironic twist, you can't work well until you've learned to rest well. Which makes a perfect transition into my second large point. That, that's the idea of the nature of work, first of all. But secondly, the Bible also says that we need to rest. Look, work is a good thing. But because of how pervasive it is in our lives, we will always have to battle a constant temptation not to make my work the core of my identity. 
Does that make sense? Remember, the first commandment that we talked about a few weeks ago said that we all have this tendency to make idols of these things around us to define ourselves by it. I mean, think about it, gentlemen. What's the first question someone asks you after learning your name? Oh, nice to meet you, Joe. So what do you do? You realize that's screaming for us, men especially, to define ourselves by our work. Or, mommies, don't you love it how someone says, what do you do? You're like, well, I take care of my children at home. Oh, so you don't work. You ever want to slap somebody when somebody says that? You want to trade for a little while? What happens? In other words, all this is screaming to us to be defined, whether we sort of experience it positively or negatively, by our work. And we buckle under the weight of that, don't we? And it's not because of the hours that we work at the office. That actually is the result, not the cause. The cause is the deeper restlessness and anxiety of the soul and angst that comes from serving something that you were never created to serve, namely our vocation. And so God says, here's my command for you. Stop. Take one day a week, not so much that you can recoup from the, way, way, the week, week behind, which I'm sure that's part of it, but much more so when you rest, you look at your job, your career, your earning potential, and you say, you don't define me. You are not who I am at my core. I'm not righteous because of my work. Which reminded me of an interesting passage in Romans chapter 4, verse 5, when Paul says, And to the one who does not work, but trusts in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. What's Paul saying? He's saying there's a fullness, there's a peace, there's a shalom that comes from the one who, quote, does not work, but, but uh, who trusts in God who justifies the unrighteous. Now look, Paul there is not talking about inactivity to the people who do nothing. What he's saying is for those who trust in their works in order to, find who they, to define who they are. Because only Jesus can occupy that space. And so therefore, for all these reasons and more, Christians throughout history have kept the Sabbath day. Or what in the New Testament they began to call the Lord's Day. And what we find then is when we cease from our work, even for a day, we exercise a profound amount of faith when we do. Again, from Eugene Peterson, he says, when we rest, we acknowledge that all of our striving in and of itself will do nothing. Rest means letting the world pass us by for a time. Genuine rest requires acknowledging that God and our brothers and sisters can survive just fine without us. It requires us to recognize our own insufficiency and hand over responsibility. Therefore, it's a moment of celebration when we acknowledge that the blessing comes only from the hand of God, which is why it requires faith. It's also why salvation can be pictured as rest. When we rest, we accept God's grace. We don't seek to earn. We receive. We do not justify. We are justified. You see what he's saying? do you have an unshakable foundation inside that's caused by ceasing at my efforts to try to work for salvation and to accept it by grace from God? Because how you rest will unveil that for you. I was trying to illustrate this and it occurred to me that I've been on more youth retreats than I could, than I could possibly count. I tried many years ago to count how many times I had been 
workers or, or, or um, cleanup people or counselors or, or even keynote speakers at youth retreats over the years. I got no idea how the count is. But I have learned one thing from all of those experiences, and that is I despise riding a bus. It's deep inside my bones. I can't stand it. And if you tell me that it's going to require an overnight bus ride for me in order to sort of get to your youth retreat, the answer is no. I'm not going with you. And here's why. Because when I get on that bus, I can't sleep. I can't sleep on that bus. Those of you who can, hey, I'm really proud of you. I got, we got a youth retreat for you to come be on. That ain't going to be me. What it occurred to me was, isn't it so difficult to go to sleep on something that's in motion? <laughs> Think about that for a second. How much harder then is it to rest in our souls on our accomplishments? Because those accomplishments move, do they not? To, to rest on my relationships, on our marriage, on our career, or on the success of my children. I can't rest on those things because they're moving. Why? What that means is there's a restlessness in my heart, a sense of longing inside, by trying to build my life on something that's in constant motion. But here's the deal. Christians are learning to rest because of the fourth commandment on the foundation that's not in motion. And that's Jesus' work on the cross. Rest in that regard is revolutionary. Because when you rest, you declare your freedom from things and your dependence on God. Okay, so what does rest look like? Well, let's deal with the obvious and then sort of the somewhat subtle. The obvious is, throughout Christian history, Christians have gotten in touch with the rhythms of life by not working on Sundays. Simple as that. And I just want to say that I don't think it's legalism to suggest that maybe your family would benefit from a personal inventory that questioned whether we were taking a day of rest at all. Maybe? What if we cleared our Sunday of a schedule of anything except for Sunday worship? It, is that so crazy a question? I mean, sure, there's people out there that I'm sure can be legalistic about their Sunday observance. But I think it's worth asking, I might be one of the people who is at zero risk for being legalistic about this because let's be honest, I've never really asked the question myself about whether I'm resting. I grant it, it's very easy to fall into a trap and it's an ugly trap of getting very particular about what you do and what you don't do on Sundays and especially what they're doing or not doing on Sundays. You do that really easily. But I think it's honestly simple to find a, a simple place to start. How about this? Whatever you do six days during the week, let's try not to do it. Let's try not to think about it one day out of the week. And tell me what rises up inside of you when you make that attempt. How insecure do you feel? Because it'll unlock for you just how enslaving our work can be. In contrast, I want you to listen to the tone of Isaiah 58, verse 13 and 14, which is really one of the most famous Old Testament passages about Sabbath worship. God says, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. Wow, that's a great promise. Call the Sabbath a delight, it says. It means that we're going to step into real joy when we find ourselves beginning to do battle with the serious tyranny that my busyness 
It inflicts on me. It has me by the throat. The promise is that we can delight again. But look, if all you're thinking about are the do's and don'ts, and this is just going to be a burden to you, I mean, the truth of the matter is, is there should be something enormously positive that comes when we take the Lord's day, when we honor the Lord's day. My children, when they were growing up, used to say something that's probably true. It's like, Daddy, church is boring. Yeah, kids, it is. I'll go ahead and tell you that. <laughs> but there are times in which we would try to say to our children, like, look, there's every now and then where mommy and daddy kind of like to go out and have a little date night with just some times at ourselves. And it's really special. Church is our date with God. It's a special time between the two of us. But what I rather want to leave you with is just this, that resting is a whole lot more than just this sort of Sunday only kind of thing. Because what Paul is going to say, and what I think he's suggesting is, is that the fourth commandment is actually going to make you realize that you're being disobedient to God every time you say yes to a task that you should have said no to. Because of how much you dread displeasing people. We can't say no to our bosses. I can't even say no to my parents. I'm unable, unable to say no to my friend group. I can't even say no to my children. And the fourth commandment is trying to convince you that that people-pleasing is killing you. And there's no amount of vacation that's going to ease that problem. Let's see if I can brag on my wife for just a minute. You know, Ginger had this great habit when, we were, um, when the kids were little. Um, of teaching me a lesson about why, who are the people that are able to leave the office at the office and not bring the office home? She always used to make me call her on the way home. Call me on your way home. Okay, fine. Because what she would do is, is she would kind of get the kids together and she would have them standing there at the door to cheer me as I walked through the door. I know that sounds silly, but it was the sweetest thing in the world. She didn't do it all the time, but every now and then was enough for me to say, home is kind of a cool place to be. Now, if you're thinking right now and you're a haggard mommy and thinking, oh, great. Now we got to have a parade for the man when he comes walking out. That is not what I'm saying. I'm not asking that question. I'm asking this question. Do you have a home like that inside? I'm talking in that cathedral that I've been trying to encourage you to construct inside your own imagination that is the place where you and Jesus meet in prayer. In that place, can you leave the office at the office? Can you come there leaving your work behind? And can he make that place a joyful place for you to be? Because the truth of the matter is, my frantic life is probably due to there being no rest there. Much more so than the way it comes out. But I'll tell you what, the Sabbath day will unpack that for me. It'll unlock that for me. And it'll bring me hopefully into the only rest that there really is, which is to be found at this table in Jesus' body and blood. That's an invitation. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, would you by grace lead us into that this morning? Father, that we might see something to get off of the treadmill of our frenetic lives. And Father, there's going to be different people who come with different convictions that you give them about how they will observe that special day. Lord, we do ask that as we grapple with that, we will not do so without tending to what's in our souls. We pray that we would have souls that we're convinced that when we turn our hearts to prayer, you'd be glad to see us. Is there a way for you to sort of unpack this in our hearts? Maybe even to this table. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.